Hey, it's David, and welcome back to the Tone Based Classical Guitar Podcast. I have a really unique episode today featuring the Grammy Award winning microtonal guitarist John Schneider. He's a fantastic soloist, chamber musician, and also a dedicated recording engineer and producer who has his own label, Microfest Records. If you're still not a member at Tonebase, head on over to tonebase.co and use the promo code PODCAST-3 for $15 off your next purchase. If you're unfamiliar with the territory of microtonal music, fear not, John goes into an in-depth explanation on what microtonality actually is and its differences from atonality. And if you're already familiar with this repertoire, you'll also very much enjoy this conversation. You'll hear about all the different instruments uh, that John has performed on in order to tackle all the different temperaments necessary that composers require for their compositions. I'm going to kick things off with a pretty approachable uh, piece of microtonal music. This is by the composer Lou Harrison, his suite number two, first movement titled Jala. This is with Amy Schulman on the harp and John Schneider on the guitar. knocked on your door and you were playing something very nice on the piano and I'm looking around here and there are quite a few instruments lying around. Um, You're surrounded. I'm surrounded. <laughs> instruments, CDs, microphones. It's uh, it's a, but this is my type of house. <laughs> it's really great to have you. And you're, I mean, we had Mock on the show earlier, but you're the first really kind of dedicated uh, microtonal musician. When did you get involved with this style of music? Ooh, Very early on? Or? Long time yeah. ago, actually, way back. Uh, actually, right after I got out of uh, grad school, okay, I had the funniest experience. I went to a, a convention. Uh, geez, I think it was at American String Teachers, or maybe it was a GFA thing. Okay, and I was giving a talk about tone color and right hand technique and all this stuff. And uh, somebody who gave the talk right in front of me had this weird guitar, and the frets were in the wrong place. <laughs> And I was busy getting ready. I didn't really listen to him. And afterwards, somebody else came up to me and said, hey, you know, I've got a guitar you might be interested in. 
And I thought, oh boy, here we go. Here's another guitar maker. And he opened the case and the frets were in very strange places. And I said, excuse me, what is going on here? Is he, this a guitar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the body was. but And we ended up talking, and uh, all of a sudden, I realized there's this whole new world. The gentleman's name was Tom Stone, the inventor of the guitar with interchangeable fingerboards. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was the first one to do that. Uh, the first one to do it commercially. Nylon. Commercially, okay. absolutely, absolutely. And he had uh, about five or six years before that gotten in touch with Lou Harrison and brought him the guitar and said, because Lou was very interested in tuning. And Lou wrote some pieces for that guitar. Well, I had just finished writing this, this thesis called The Contemporary Guitar, which ended up being a book. And I just got into it and started listening to it. And he played me some Bach in a well temperament. I said, what do you mean a well temperament? Equal temperament? He said, oh, no, no, no. And now, of course, <laughs> I know exactly what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when it started. That was a long time yeah. ago. And then I got to know Lou, and I recorded all of his music. And when you talk about microtones, all basically in this country, all roads lead to Parch. Yeah. So then I got involved with Harry Parch, and I've never looked back. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I, I'm realizing maybe we should do a quick overview or definition of what exactly microtonal music is for some of our listeners, because uh, they, they might be totally confused of what a uh, adjustable fret guitar even looks like. So I'll probably put links in this episode. Yeah, it's a very good idea, actually. So guitarists, to, you know, that's basically who's listening to this podcast mostly, right? Know that their, their <laughs> frets are, are straight. They go all the way across. Mm -hmm. And there's 12 notes per octave and C sharp and D flat. Basically, you can call it whatever you want. It's the same fret. No big deal. Turns out there's a reason why they have different names, because they have different functions. A C-sharp is a major third above an A. It's not a, a major third below. It's not a D-flat. doesn't have a relationship with an F. And f from way, way back, it, it turns out that um, musicians knew that. Mm -hmm. And that's why the language is different. So microtones means small differences, right? And it turns out there is a difference between a C-sharp and a D-flat, and it's very small. It's, yeah. it's micro. So basically, uh, I like to call them the notes between the notes. The notes between the notes. Yeah. That should be like a book title, or it probably already is. Um, maybe it will be, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very general um, concept about what microtones are. And there's, well, let's put it this way. We have 12 notes per octave on our guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a violin player and you actually articulate the difference between a C-sharp and a D-flat, those are two different notes. Okay, so maybe you have two values for each fret. Well, the ear can actually hear up to five to 600 notes in the octave. Wow. Not 12. <laughs> That's a lot more. A single octave. A single octave. That's oh, amazing. yeah, 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 yeah. A single octave. And I mean, it, I knew it would be more than 12, but five to 600? Wow. We are physically capable of discerning five to 600 discrete pitches between C and shining C, wow. which is pretty intense. Do you right? know if dogs can hear even more? Uh, maybe, you know, I'll have to ask my pooch here. Yeah. So I'm sure she has some... When she's back in here. <laughs> <laughs> she has an opinion on it. Yeah, yeah. So the fact is, uh, there's many ways to divide up that octave, and there's many 
different kinds of notes between the notes. Some are acoustically pure. Some are just kind of cool and weird and wonderful. And there you go. Yeah. And when you first started with microtonal music, I'm guessing you were first playing Baroque music of our beloved composers. Absolutely. And the proper temperaments. And then was it a pretty, I don't want to say transition, but was it pretty early on you were very interested in um, contemporary microtonal music leading towards atonality, or did that come a bit later? Ooh, you're going to have to bite your tongue. We're not talking about atonality oh. here, right? So uh, tonality is a big sub- subject, actually. Yeah. When you use microtones to tune pure intervals, so a major third is a pure major third, and mm-hmm. people are saying, what do you mean? My, what's, what's impure about a major third? Well, all I ask anyone to do is, for example, uh, pick up your guitar and make sure that the sixth string and the first string are in tune with one another. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, play a fretted G sharp on the first string with an open sixth string, and you'll notice there's some beating going on. Like, now, if you really want to get crazy, make a harmonic just above the fourth fret on the sixth string. And that G sharp is going to be supposedly the same note as that fretted fourth fret top E string. Mm. It isn't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but the one coming off of the, the low string, the harmonic, that's pure. And if you retune your string, all of a sudden, oh, they lock beautifully. Of course, oops, now your string's too flat. Yeah. Which is why we move frets. So that's the whole concept of purity. Yeah. Uh, So in reality, I began getting really into contemporary music, in fact. Uh, That's sort of what I spent most of my my time in college doing, is is chasing all those sounds. Just because, you know, uh, when I started playing classic guitar, I was, you know, about two or three months away from having my my debut, and I was playing Soar and Giuliani. And a friend of mine said, oh, I got this really cool record. I think you'll like it. It was Stravinsky conducting the Rite of Spring. Mm. And I looked at my little guitar, and I I listened to that, and I said, wait a minute. What am I doing? I'd rather do that. And I became a composition major after that. Yeah. But then uh, after I got out of of school as a composition major, I thought, wait a minute. There's got to be some cool contemporary music for guitar. And that led me down that path, which eventually led to the book, The Contemporary Guitar. So I began with Bach and all the stuff that I love, but then went way off into the music future. And then... Those two things came together because yeah. a lot of contemporary music, not a lot, uh, not enough, <laughs> uses different pitches, some of those microtonal pitches. So, yeah, I mean, I, I use microtonality for everything. Yeah. What do you recommend to somebody who's never listened to microtonal music, at least seriously, for the first time when they hear it? Because a lot of people are so used to equal temperament which is actually, even though they perceive it as in tune, it's an awful sound. And when they first hear microtonal music, it's a bit of a, I feel like you have to pass a bit of a threshold or a barrier to get used to it. Absolutely. Is there anything you recommend as an introduction to this? Or do you just have to jump right into the deep end of the pool? Well, it helps. I mean, there's a couple of pieces which I like to suggest for people. Uh, Ben Johnston wrote a famous string quartet, which is a theme and variations on Amazing Grace. And within a 10-minute span, it goes from the most basic intervals using pure fifths, then he goes to pure thirds, then pure sevenths, 
and then pure 11s, and it keeps getting stranger and stranger and stranger. So you get sucked in because, oh, this sounds really nice. And all of a sudden, whoa, where <laughs> am I? Where do we go? Yeah, pretty much. Um, he also wrote an amazing piece for piano way back in the 1970s called The Suite for Microtonal Piano. And its second movement is called The Blues. And oh, boy. A friend of mine, actually, uh, who got into microtonality said, oh, I get what you're doing. All those blues notes most people bend up to, they're fretted instead of bending up to it. So that's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, if folks like guitar, uh, Lou Harrison's music is a great way to get into it. Um, he's written quite a few pieces for refretted guitar. But watch out, a lot of people recorded on equal-tempered guitars, mm. which just made lose skin crawl yeah but he also realized he had to live in the real world so what what do you think of that when people are playing these new pieces but not on the proper instrument do you think it's a disservice to the composer or is there a bit of light of course yeah. it's a disservice to the composer but you know uh, i still like andra schiff playing the well-tempered clavier on a modern steinway what yeah. he does musically is extraordinary but it's just such a shame that that dimension is missing. Yeah. Because when you hear it in the proper well-temperament... There's no one going, going back. Pretty much, pretty much. But it, again, it's one of those preferred things. Lou even said that about his guitar music at the end. Uh, the modal tuning is the preferred one. Modal meaning actually in tune. Yeah. And I'm just looking behind me. This is a beautiful instrument. Who made this guitar here? Uh, that guitar is a Bob Mattingly guitar, and it has the interchangeable fingerboards that uh, that Lou wrote for. Wow. And from a guitar construction standpoint, for a guitar like this at least, mm -hmm. it's the exact same construction except on the fingerboard. Exactly. The body. Exactly I mean, the same. It, it was uh, one of my very best concert guitars right and it had straight frets all the way oh, up oh and then you installed the yeah we ripped out the old frets and then put this system in and it's a bit more elaborate than a standard refret job after a couple years Affir affirmative <laughs> yes <laughs> how how does it work exactly because i've never played one of these instruments when they're movable i mean with lutes and baroque guitars literally you just loosen the gut fret and you could slide yeah, it off yeah. to the side is it is it kind of a like how some guitars have adjustable action with a special Allen wrench. Is it something like that? Or do you just slide them with your fingers? Well, it depends which guitar you're talking about. The one we were just talking about a moment ago has interchangeable fingerboards with the entire system pulls oh. off and on. Wow. That's uh, That was the one that Tom Stone invented way back in the 70s and that Lou Harrison wrote for. However, uh, there's another guitar that uh, Mock uses in his album and that I've used for quite a few albums where each fret for each note on each string moves individually. Wow. So you can tune it just like a harpsichord or a piano. Actually, more like a harpsichord, because a piano, you've got three strings. You have to and you can just do that with your fingers. It doesn't need... Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you have to push kind of hard. There's also the guy invented a little tool that pushes it back and forth. So you don't destroy your calluses. Also <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. So does that mean when you walk into a concert where you're going to play several different temperaments, you're walking in with a briefcase full of uh, fretboards with this guitar here? Yep. That's fit. How many of those do you have? Oh, about 10 or 12. Wow. Yeah. And what are the temperaments you're using mainly? Well, mainly, well, uh, temperament and tuning, we have to 
We, I don't want to get too maybe nerdy we should, here, but yeah, to temper something means to slightly make it out of tune in order to make it work in whatever universe you want to work in. That's equal temperament. All the notes are slightly changed. So there's tunings where things are actually in tune, and then there's temperaments where the notes are slightly out of tune. Mm-hmm. So um, I use all of the above. Yeah. Um, Pure intervals. Uh, there's something called Pythagorean tuning, where the where the perfect fifths are pure, but everything else is not. Um, there is just intonation, which is uh, a, a higher level where you get maybe the thirds, the fifths, and the sevenths are in tune, or you can go up to as many harmonics as you want. Yeah. Right? And those are called limits. So like an 11 limit goes all the way up to the 11th harmonic, that sort of thing. Then there's well temperaments where uh, a lot of the fifths, they're pure and some of them are not. And the major thirds are a different size for every key. Hmm. That's amazing. Wow. Which means each key has its own personality, its own yeah. color. It literally vibrates differently yeah. one to the next. So it's not just the altitude between an E flat and D, but it's also the quality of the intervals, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Wow. And with this, and I'm sorry if I'm being a dead horse, it's just so cool to me. With, with these interchangeable fretboards mm-hmm. is this something you can do pretty quickly on stage or do you oh, need incredibly a, quickly yeah it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing so basically it's <laughs> it's a fingerboard shaped refrigerator magnet <laughs> with a bunch of frets glued on it each with a different pattern wow and it, it's a magnet that holds it on exactly the- exactly so when you, you can pull it on and off in five seconds wow. and replace them and then all you have to do is retune the open strings depending on what system you're using so that whole process usually takes about 12 to 15 seconds. Yeah, bam. so you can play in many different styles. Pretty much. On a single concert. So along with being a fantastic musician, you're a serious recording engineer, producer, editor, and mixer. I mean, you recorded the Macrotonal record, which we just had some listening samples a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. which we love. What's, what's your approach to recording the classical guitar and ensembles? Uh, for solo classical guitar, um, I like detail. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I have noticed over the years is that uh, the instrument, as we all know, it, it vibrates, uh, the, the top vibrates differently for every pitch, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, in different modes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it also radiates different pitches in different directions. So when you're actually sitting in front of a guitar, you're really getting a multi-dimensional thing. If you really listen closely with your eyes closed, if someone does a scale very slowly, the source of that pitch actually moves Mm. in space. And I've never heard a a commercial recording that captures that. Yeah. So uh, I've figured out a way how to capture it. And how'd you do that? I'll have to kill you if You'll I tell you. You'll have to kill me. I'll know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. I'll die. No. <laughs> but I, I would suggest listening to, uh, for example, Macrotonal mm-hmm. or uh, some of the uh, the Microfest recordings that I've made of solo instruments. And uh, there's something going on there. Yeah. And you're mainly a ribbon guy when it comes to microphone Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And for any listeners who don't know what a ribbon is, it's, uh, I mean, you could probably explain it much better than me, but it's a microphone that uses an extremely thin, is it aluminum foil? Yeah. Aluminum yeah. foil. It's thin enough where if you just uh, blow into it by accident, it tears the ribbon. They're very fragile. 
But basically, this ribbon vibrates very similarly to how our ears function. And that's why we use them. And that's why they have such a realistic and beautiful sound altogether. Yeah, yeah. They're just amazing. And, and you're a Royer guy, you're saying, It's right? true. It's true. Do you know the guys? Up sure. In Bur- they're in Burbank, right? Mm-hmm. That's got to be pretty nice. To- well, there's a beautiful long story about that. But uh, Dave Royer actually uh, re- was a guest recording engineer on one of my albums. Really? And we got to know each other really well. Wow. And then he brought one of his uh, his new experimental uh, mics in. And Ooh. we ended up using it on half the tracks. So. Yeah. It it was another ribbon microphone? Uh, it, was, it was a Mojave. Or a Mojave. Because he founded yeah. the Mojave Company, which That's is... That's right. That's right. Mainly large diaphragm condensers. Oh, they're small they, and they large. They do small oh, as yeah. well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was it was it just a FET condenser or was it one of the uh, tubes? That, no, no, it's tube. Yeah. Yeah, the, the original MA100s actually have tubes in them. And it's interesting to me because most, I would say 98% of small diaphragm microphones you see on the market today at least are just FETs, not mm-hmm. using tubes. And when you employ the tubes into these microphones, they still retain the detail and clarity that make small diaphragm condensers so unique. Mm-hmm. But they have that extra dimension with very soft saturation. I, I really wish there were more of them. Because yeah. it's very yeah. standard to find like a big vocal mic with a tube in it. But not so much with the small diaphragms. Which yeah, is, it's interesting. It's too bad. There's many ways to record. And there's many, many ways to record. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, because I mean, you've done enough recording to know this. Uh, my favorite way to sum the whole thing up is there is no is. Yep. <laughs> there, it's different every time. It's, it's different every time and everyone's uh, ears are different and there is no way to really capture reality. Mm-hmm. People are now going into an amazing number of channels and and diffuse sound and surround sound, just trying to capture. I mean, our ears are so magically adept. Yeah. And just trying to make that happen in, in 2D, in left-right, is is a real challenge. It's tricky. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it really hasn't taken off that much, from what I gather, with surround sound in regards to mixing. But it'll be interesting to see if maybe that becomes much more prominent as it has in film soundtracks. It could be... Especially like a Rush album, I could see that being pretty exciting. Or some Pink sure, Floyd. Um, yeah. absolutely. There's a, there's actually a place up in San Francisco called uh, Envelope dot US. Mm-hmm. Envelope us. They have a special system that's twenty channels around. Twenty channels. Wow. Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Twenty eight. And they literally they put on shows. They remix Pink Floyd albums. Oh my goodness! Beatles albums, et cetera, et cetera. They actually—I don't know where they get the stems to do that, but yeah. it's supposed to be absolutely extraordinary. And people are developing now because of the gaming world. They are developing multi-playback headphones. Yeah. So you can get a quasi-binaural experience. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it—it's crazy to think how it was just what the '60s when people were arguing between mono and stereo, thinking stereo was a fad and now look at us, 28 channel <laughs> playback. What, what'd you, just out of curiosity, what do you think of Brian Wilson at the Beach Boys still arguing that mono's the way to go? I, I had not heard that argument. This is total recording nerddom. So I'm completely obsessed with the music of Harry Parch. Harry Parch recorded uh, much of his music, if not uh, all of it, 
and released them on recordings in the 1950s. So in order to uh, do my research, I found as many early recordings as possible so I could really get the interpretation correct. Mm -hmm. And I ran into a record collector who had some very rare parts on green vinyl, on red vinyl. Wow. These are mono recordings from the early 50s. Yeah. And I had just finished mixing and mastering the recording that eventually got us a Grammy. It was... It was as realistic and as amazing, and it was high resolution, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so I had that in my ears. I went to this guy's house, and he pulled out this green vinyl recording of exactly the same piece I had just recorded and mixed, right, with, I think, geez, it must have been like 45 channels. It was a mono recording. Yeah. He put it on a special turntable. His playback system cost probably the half of this house, right? It was like wow. $75,000, $100,000, total high end. And I sat in that chair, and I swear to you, I heard complete dimensionality. I could hear distance. I could hear left and right. What? In mono. In mono. Wow. So there's a lot of information in the in those grooves, That's right? Yeah, yeah. So it taught wow. me a lot. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe Brian's right. Maybe he. You never know. I always thought Capitol Records was just trying to capitalize on Beatles. Say, oh, here's the original monos, and here's the new stereo, and now we're going to remaster it in 20 bit. Now it's in 24 bit. Blah 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 blah. They're all different. Yeah. There is no is. I know several people who swear by the Beatles. Uh... Sgt. Pepper and White Album in mono. I haven't listened to it yet. I would love to. How it's just a totally different approach. Mm. Mu both musically, aside from mixing and mixing, at least it sounds like a different musical approach. And they, they were recording with mono in mind yep, back course, in those days. Of course. I mean, they, they really thought stereo was just a fad. Um, it's crazy how things go. When you engineer, produce, edit, mix, are you mostly... In the classical world? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And is it mostly microtonal music? or? Uh, it's turned out that way because most of the projects that uh, I do and that I pay for and produce are microtonal because they're for my label, Microfest yeah. Records, which is, guess what? <laughs> it's all microtonal, all microtonal music. Yeah. But I get called as an engineer to do other, other yeah. you know, sort of gigs and, you know, that's fine. And how long has microtonal records been out for microfest records, records started in 2012 okay yeah and how many how many cds do we have on this label now? we are now we just released our 13th wow release which is not bad for about five or six years and you've recorded each one of these cds on uh, most, most of, them. of them most of them some of them not because it's a my partner is a gentleman named aaron calais who is a keyboard player and in order to get his whole thing, he uses a, a program called Piano Tech. Okay. Which is a virtual uh, dial it in sort of a piano yeah. where you can, oh, I'm sorry, did you want a 15 foot soundboard? Fine. In what kind of a room? What's on the ceiling? That sort of thing. And no, of course, even emulate the, the pedal sound when it's oh, uh, oh, coming absolutely, off. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. And because of that, I mean, you can also totally control every aspect of the pitch. Yeah. So he commissions all sorts of music, and the challenge of the composer is whatever you do, don't make the keyboard normal. If I've got 88 keys, you can make that divide a half step into 88 parts if you want. Mm. You can make my right hand play the bass, you can make my, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that stuff, so I, I don't record those albums. <laughs> so is he kind of recording on a 
keyboard or a MIDI keyboard that exactly. goes into the program. Exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. Flexibility. Or you want to hear the music. It's insanely diverse. Yeah. It's amazing what we could do with technology. And I recently, uh, well, not too recently, but a couple months, someone played me this orchestral composition, which was composed in about half an hour and mixed and completed within three hours, all in the box with orchestral samples. And I was like, there's no way this is going to sound good. Surprise. It was horrifying how good it sounded. First of all, it was a nice composition. I mean, it was a film score, you Mm, know, but mm. there's some great film score music and it sounded so realistic. And apparently this person who did it, he has this system he's using these uh, Slate Raven kind of touchscreen mixing consoles. And he's just like an evil scientist for three hours. And I don't want to say it, but I think if no one introduced it to me that way and I was just listening to it a bit more casually, I would have no idea. Of course. It was all samples. It's amazing what you can do. And the use, the the commercial use of that kind of medium, I mean, it's for movies, it's for TV, it's for gaming, it's for radio. And the visual, I mean, we take in, what, 70 to 80% of the information about the world around us through our eyes. Yeah. And our ears are sort of, eh. They're there to, to remind us if it's real or not. Yeah. So if we like what's going on, I mean, our brain is too busy. Yeah. There is something special, though, about a real instrument being played live. And I think that's hopefully, knock on wood, what's going to save classical music well, in the coming years. But you never know. But, you know, they're, they're, it's not either or anymore. Yeah. So that doesn't matter. I mean, there are so many ways. I mean, look at all the kinds of screens we have. Look at all the ways we have to consume music. And there's so many styles of music and so many ways to experience music. So yeah. acoustic music will never die. Because yeah. as soon as, you know, there's no power coming through the plug, what are you going to do? Yeah. Right? <laughs> that might happen. I know. Seeing how things are going right I now, know. especially. <laughs> but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Most of the titles now are our guitar releases, and on different kinds of guitars, too. One is completely performed. Actually, two now. What I mean, I just released a new album called Just National Guitar, and that's for the refretted uh, National Resophonic Guitar. It's our second disc that's only played on that instrument. And those instruments, they're, they're the really heavy kind of silver top exactly. instruments? Exactly. What, what style of music were those used for originally? It was kind of... Bluegrass folk? No, or? no. Originally, it was just, it was invented in the 20s just so they could hear somebody going chunk, chunk, chunk yeah. chords in the background because they didn't have electric guitars yeah. yet. And well, that's why banjo was so prominent in jazz bands back then. Absolutely. It would cut through. It cuts through. Yeah. Exactly. You see those photos of musicians literally recording into a funnel. <laughs> <laughs> for I, what was it called like wax uh it was the wax cylinders the wax cylinders yeah pretty amazing stuff yeah. so that's what those were originally oh, made that's for that's interesting but then when the electric guitar came along they sort of fell out of fashion they ended up in a lot of pawn shops and a lot of the blues folks picked them up but they were also used for a slide for on the yeah. lap you know square necks for hawaiian music too and they, in fact the the reason why uh, i've got so much going on with the national guitar with the just intonation national guitar is because Lou Harrison's last guitar piece was for a refretted 
National Rasophonic Guitar. Mm. And the only reason he loved it, it turns out toward the end of his life, when he first ran into guitar in the 1950s, he thought it was the greatest sound ever. We're talking about classical guitar now. Yeah. Towards the end of his life, he said, uh, I don't like it. It's kind of thump, thump, thump. I, you know, I just want something. Metal strings are and he decided he got commissioned uh, for this last piece that he wrote for David Tannenbaum. You probably talked to David about it. Uh, a piece called "Scenes from Nick Chand" or Nick Chand, and it was for a refretted National Resophonic guitar. Because when he was a kid, he heard Hawaiian music, slide music, yeah. on that instrument over the radio. Yeah. Yeah. So he sort of put all his lows together, pure intervals, et cetera, et cetera. And now that the instrument exists, there's, oh, there's hours of music that's been written. And the the instrument's only existed since 2003. Yeah. He was the first composer. He invented for, the guitar. He invented it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the great thing has been that the National Guitar Company made a couple of extra ones. And I, uh, I have a loaner that I send to different composers. Oh, and okay. they get it for six months or a year. Terry Riley wrote one of the first pieces for mm. it. Uh, there's a wonderful gentleman here in L.A. called Peter Yates. Uh, there's a whole list of, of wonderful pieces that have been written, and I'm slowly recording them. That's what this new album is. It's called oh, okay. Just National. Just National. And, and how heavy are these guitars? Yes. <laughs> Very good answer. Yeah, yeah. People say, oh, I'll take your guitar for you, because usually I travel with two or three instruments, yeah. and I... Let you give them that, that one case exactly. And they go, what is in here? Uh, do you play with a footstool then, bouncing on your? Lap well, leg? I usually use a guitar cushion. Are you? That probably yeah. helps. Mm. I could, mm. I could see. Like, but it's so heavy after a session. I mean, I have on the inside of my legs are dented from the weight of the wow. instrument. So it's. Does your leg fall asleep when you're playing on it? Or uh, not yet? Not yet. That'll be yet. good. And hopefully the no. audience doesn't either. So. <laughs> So in terms of Microfest Records, we've got a, a couple of, of releases that just use that instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have a group called Just Strings. Just are we, Strings. Are we noticing a little yeah. connection here? Yeah. It's, it's a play on words, of course, because it's really shorthand for just intonation strings. Because the Just Strings is a trio for harp, guitar, and percussion. So it's not just strings, but the strings are just... Got a boom. You get the idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll insert that in post. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I do have a sample for it. No kidding. Because Bill wouldn't stop cracking puns, so well, I decided I got really mean. I was doing that, and then the really cringy ones, I had crickets playing. But I, I felt bad, so I took the crickets out. <laughs> So uh, that's a, a couple of the releases for Microvest. Some of our most recent releases, of course, the, the Mokratonal uh, album with, with Mock Urkic. There's also one that was basically born from USC, and that's a, a new album. It's a double album, a portrait album, of a composer named Jeffrey Holmes. Mm-hmm who studied at SC. He now lives here in Southern California and teaches here. And uh, the main guitarist is Mike Kadurka, yeah. who is an SC graduate. Monster player. Truly, truly. And uh, Jeff has written a lot of music. So this double CD, the first half is chamber music, a beautiful string quartet. There's a little piano concerto. There's a piano trio. And the second CD is nothing but guitar pieces. Okay. Solo, duos. There's a concerto for guitar and instruments. And there's a concerto for two guitars and instruments. So that's our latest release. It's and just, Brian Head also played on that? That's right. And you're able to have the composer? 
behind the glass in the production oh, stage? He was uh, absolutely. He yeah. was there for for every every moment. Well, I guess for remote recordings, it's not so much behind the glass. No, he was in the room behind the behind the stand. Yeah, well, behind the music stand, exactly. Yeah, it's probably. How does notation go about for microtonal music? Is it different for every composer practically practically yeah it, it all depends uh, lou harrison's music that i came up with he basically limits himself to five seven sometimes uh, 12 notes per octave so it just looks normal when he says c it's not a regular c on a regular guitar but mm -hmm. it's been retuned so when i see a c i hit that fret and wherever that fret has been removed or replaced, um, I get that note. Harry Parch's music is a little different because mm -hmm. he uses sometimes as many as 43 notes per octave. Wow. And the notation is, basically it's a tablature. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a whole nother world. 43 notes, I mean, good heavens. Not too easy to sight read on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the music that Jeffrey Holmes has written, he uses on, on that disc, they are equal-tempered guitars but they've been retuned. The Scortatura is such that, for example, there's some wonderful duos between uh, Micah Durka and Brian Head, and one of the guitars is tuned 31% of a semitone lower than the other. Wow. Yes, you have to use an electronic tuner yeah. to do that, but you don't really have to because it turns out that a pure seventh, if you, again, if you're playing harmonics on a low E string and go da 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 da, that seventh is 31 cents, which stands for 31% of a semitone down. Mm -hmm. So the whole instrument is basically a pure minor seventh lower than another one. And he gets these amazing things bouncing back and forth. Wow. So there you go. And that music, it just looks like regular equal yeah. temper guitar music. But of course, it's kind of, I mean, I, I really hate to compare it to this, but kind of like with. I should even say it, but kind of like with Koyumbaba, how it's written. Oh, of course. Right. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a tablature. It does yeah. not show. And of course, a lot of composers, when they do these wild scortaturas, they'll have a double staff. Yeah. Here's what you're playing. And then for the musicologist or the editor or producer. the listener, yeah. the producer, here's the notes that are supposed to be there. So you're one of the, the few Grammy winners we've had on the show. Hmm. And that is with your ensemble, Parch. Yeah. Named after the composer, Parch. How long have you been playing together with this ensemble? This group started as, actually, uh, I was talking about that band earlier, Just Strings. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 90s, we started playing Harry Parch's music, but I had to, <laughs> because it was for harp and guitar, we could get the harp to retune, and I had a refretted guitar, so we could almost play some of his music. But it just wasn't quite, you know, I started building parch instruments because uh -huh. I wanted to be authentic. You know, there's this whole argument, of course, every classical guitarist knows about this. Okay, I'm playing Bach. Bach didn't know what a classical guitar was, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and actually, most of the stuff wasn't even written for lute, right? So that is that whole thing. So I thought in the spirit of authenticity, I should at least give Harry Parch's music the the respect that it needs. Play it on the correct instrument. So it all started with a, a piece for solo guitar called Barstow. And once I did that, I thought, well, wait, you know, he's made a couple of guitars. And I started copying the guitars, but then we needed other instruments to go with them. So basically, uh, it grew from there. Yeah. So it started way back in the 90s, but officially became Parch probably uh, about 2001. And when did you win the Grammy? 
That was 2014, I think. That must have been a thrill. Yeah. And what record was that? Uh, Plectra and Percussion Dances. Okay. Which is this huge cycle. It's an hour-long cycle of three big pieces that are put together. And I play microtonal guitar on it. I also play something called a harmonic cannon, which is a 44- Harmonic cannon. Yeah. I love that. It's a 44-string zither, uh, a box zither. We have three or four of them because there's different tunings. And I play chamber, uh, cloud chamber bowls and all sorts of other things. Each and every one of the players in the band plays two or three different instruments too. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a, it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So wow. we, that was um, volume two of this series that I've been doing for uh, Bridge Records. And the new one, volume three, has the delicious title of Sonata Dementia. Sonata Dementia. And... That's actually the name of a piece that he wrote in 1950. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's hilarious. And again, he uses, uh, we have, geez, uh, 18 different musical instruments. He invented about 25 of them in his own lifetime. But uh, over the last two decades, I've actually recreated 18 of them. Wow. And we're making all this great music. And it's just, it's microtonality as it should be. Pure yeah. intervals on original instruments. And it's it's an experience. Yeah. Thank you, John, for being on the show. I'm going to leave things with a really neat piece titled Rhythmicon Number 1, and this is by the composer Carter Schultz. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.